Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight, is the Ownership Society dead? Peter Gosselin, National Economics Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, takes on the question as he outlines the themes in his latest book, High Wire, The Precarious Financial Lives of American Families. Beyond today's headlines of the subprime mortgage crisis and home foreclosures, Gosselin looks at some long-term warning signs regarding our economic health. Convinced we can't rely on standard microeconomic statistics, Gosselin developed a set of statistics based on the U.S. government's 40-year panel study of income dynamics and concludes families are not financial firms and households are not hedge funds. And the free market financial story is just that, a story. Recorded before a live audience at NPR West as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Peter Gosselin. Thank you very much. I think the issues that I want to talk about are, I think, very important, maybe I think too important, especially when we're on the eve of a general election for the president. When George Bush was at the apex of his presidency, when he'd just been reelected in 2004 and seemed to have enough power not only to change American foreign policy and the political landscape, but the very fabric of society, he talked about an ownership society. And when he talked about an ownership society, he thought he was advocating uh, its creation. But I think, along with so much else that politicians say, all Bush was doing was putting words to a change that had already largely occurred. Highwire can be read as tracing uh, the ownership society free market makeover of America as it has played out in the lives of American working families up and down the economic spectrum, or at least much of the economic spectrum. When the president spoke about the ownership society, he always did so in the sunniest of terms. He talked about how this rearrangement of society would leave Americans to keep much more of their own money, do with it what they would, and it would certainly be more sensible than anything government could do, and that would spark a burst of prosperity that would lift up individuals, their families, and the nation as a whole. As I say, the president talked about this as something that would happen, but something very much like this did happen uh, starting in the years following uh, the 1970s. If you think back to that era, you will remember the mess that the nation was in uh, with prices, especially for fuel and food, rocketing, uh, pillar industries such as steel and autos uh, sinking under foreign competition, and policy essentially hamstrung, unable uh, to solve one problem without creating another one. Our nation's leaders, others before the arrival of Ronald Reagan, but most vividly Ronald Reagan, uh, reacted first by essentially stepping on the economic brake bringing the economy uh, essentially to a halt in a deep recession, then by deregulating industries, reeling in safety nets, and generally remaking the economy uh, in the image of its uh, frontier predecessor, a much more market-oriented economy. The medicine seemed to work. I suspect even much better than the doctors who prescribed it expected it to. Inflation fell. Growth revived. Whole new industries, high-tech industries, replaced those that had been pounded by foreign competition, and first the stock market and then the housing market took off. And by the mid-80s and certainly by the mid and late 90s, Americans were on the make and the economy seemed to have locked into a virtuous cycle of ever-expanding prosperity. It's no wonder that Bush's rhetoric uh, about everybody getting a piece of the rock uh, in his ownership society resonated. We just lived through getting pieces of the rock for ourselves. What Highwire shows is that along with this burst of free market energy and this powerful prosperity came something else, something distinctly less pleasant. Uh, There were hints that 
there was this something else there all along. Even as the economy was lifting off in the 80s and the 90s, Americans in growing numbers told pollsters they were nervous about their economic uh, situations. Indeed, uh, many of us, even the affluent among us, those with family incomes running into the several hundreds of thousands of dollars, arrived at this new century increasingly uneasy with a gnawing sense that our circumstances were changing in a way that left us less secure. But I have to say that efforts to locate the source of this unease were long-running and, in general, a failure. Uh, And there was a kind of classic case. This sort of um, culminated in in my mind, in a series that was run in my wife's paper, the New York Times, uh, the downsizing series. Uh, This was an incredibly ambitious effort to look at changes in the American economy over the previous 20 years. And it essentially made the burger flipper argument, the argument that the good jobs were all going and we were left with the bad ones. Indeed, This was the metric that everybody trying to understand this this mismatch of rising material circumstances and uh, and increasing unease, this was the metric that everybody used. They looked at jobs, and they looked at only one aspect of them, good or bad. The problem was that the series ran in March of 1996, and in April of 1996, the American economy turned in its first 300,000-plus job creation month, and it proceeded to create a net new 300,000 jobs for every month for the next five years, which took the legs right out from under the, the bad jobs argument. Indeed, it so took the legs out from under the bad job argument that by the early part of this century, not working Americans, but commentators uh, were dismissing the notion uh, that there was any real reason to be uneasy. Uh, They basically were saying that Americans were misreading their economic circumstances. Indeed, this culminated, in in uh, in my mind, in a book by Greg Easterbrook called The Progress Paradox, where he, and I do not distort, made the following argument. We are so prosperous now that we can afford to worry about whether we're prosperous enough. This is the sort of worried well argument. I came to this effort, to the project for the LA Times and, and now the book, first believing that the Easterbrook uh, notion is, is simply offensive. And it's not a little bit nerve-wracking, if true, because if people can so misread something as close to them as their economic circumstances, one worries about them electing a president. So, I took another route in Highwire. I focused first on families, not individuals and their jobs, on the argument that families are our our primary source of our economic sense of self. And so in the book, I look across the entire material terrain of families, jobs, benefits, houses, savings, education, retirements, and so forth. And I try to ask a question that is compatible with people actually having experienced real, improved prosperity. The question could be roughly phrased this way. Is the prosperity that people were enjoying being bought at a price? The answer that I come to, uh, I came to in the series and I come to in the book, is that people are indeed paying a price, and that price is an increase, a substantial increase, in the risk they run of taking steep financial falls. And the chief source of that increase has been a shift of risk from the broad shoulders of business and government to the backs of working families from the working poor to the reasonably rich. Now, in economic and financial circles, the notion that rewards, rewards of rising prosperity, any rewards, compared with rising risks is uncontroversial. All economic life is seen in economic and financial circles as a series of risk-reward trade-offs. But for for most Americans, the notion that the good times of the previous generation have come at a cost with a dark underbelly, if you will, seemed like a cruel joke, one from which they recoil and to which they object. This is in part because, though we Americans are always described as striving economic creatures, when it comes to the basics of our households, our spouses, our children, their education, we don't all fit the entrepreneurial stereotype. We, or many of us, are much more interested in a certain minimal level of stability and security. 
The other reason people have objected to this, this sort of risk shift notion is that the shifts have occurred in a way that have blinded us to them. They, they have not occurred in, largely in the glare of the public arena, but in the privacy of, of the private sector, both in the employer-employee relationship and in the product and service market. Because people so objected to this, it, I felt it was incumbent on me to make a strong case that in fact this shift had occurred uh, and is causing a fundamental change in working Americans' circumstances. And in fact, I make three cases in the book, and I'm going to give you a quick peek at each of them. I make a quantitative case, a structural case, and a narrative case. I make the quantitative case because, largely because in economics, strong cases are come, are assumed to come equipped with numbers. Economists simply won't take things seriously if you can't quantify it. We can't rely on the standard macroeconomic statistics. Unemployment during this period that I'm writing about, the, this trend unemployment rate was going down. Indeed, most of the economic statistics that are normally used in measuring the economy seem to be showing good news. So I developed a set of statistics of my own, one that I hope you find, uh, if you read the chapter on the numbers, is closer to the ground and looks at the economy more as you see it, instead of top-down, essentially out the front door, if you will. What I did is I relied on a database that the government has kept. They've followed the same 5,000, nationally representative sample of 5,000 families and all their spinoffs for 40 years. It's called the Panel Study of Income Dynamics. And I didn't ask questions, the kind of standard economic questions of did incomes in, on average rise or did the distance between those at the bottom and the top get larger. I asked a different question, which is essentially how did people's incomes move through time? How did a family that was making $20,000 in 1990 and was making $40,000 at the end of the decade, get from here to there? Did their income go up in neat, even annual increments? Or did it fly through the ceiling and fall through the floor on the way from the beginning to the end of the period? You're listening to National Economics Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, Peter Gosling, who asks, is the Ownership Society dead? This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. What do Presidents George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and FDR have in common? According to presidential historian Gil Troy, it's not that they had a particularly bold or different vision for the country. It's that they were known for their moderation. Gil Troy is author of Leading from the Center, Why Moderates Make the Best Presidents. I'm Larry Mantle. That's what's up on our next Air Talk. Air Talk weekday mornings at 10 on 89.3 KPCC. Alcoholic is too polite a word for writer Neil Steinberg. He says he's a drunkard. He's hit his wife, yanked phones out of the wall, and fished liquor bottles out of the trash to drain the dregs. His book is The Drunkard, a valentine, a confessional, and a farewell to the drinking life. I'm Pat Morrison. Kansas Governor Kathleen Sebelius is a woman whose name often comes up as a possible number two to Barack Obama. How could the head of the Sunflower State help out the senator from Illinois? That's here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC news on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC news, on air, online, and now on the phone, too. 
If it's time to get rid of that old gas guzzler, the KPCC Vehicle Donation Program can help. When you donate your used car, truck, or boat today, you're also supporting the new service you trust. You know you always get great mileage out of your listening, and your vehicle donation helps ensure we'll continue to bring you the service you count on. From scheduling a pickup to sending you information for your taxes, we do it all. So get rid of that old gas guzzler today at kpcc.org. Thanks. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now, it's back to National Economics Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, Peter Goslin, who asks, is the Ownership Society dead? In doing this, I stole a page from the stock market, where the standard measure of risk is the beta of a stock, which tells us how much a stock's price swings around a mean. The general notion with a stock is that the bigger the swing, the more likely it is an investor will get caught out with the price down when he or she has to sell. Similarly, with a family, with family income, the general story is that the more the swing, the more likely it is that a family will get caught in the midst of an income downdraft when something bad happens and lay off an illness and injury, and then they'll have a harder time recovering their financial footing. My headline finding is that the swing, the wobble, the volatility of family income has risen steeply over the last 30 years. For the hypothetical family in the middle of the economic pile, it's about doubled. So that instead of, in, these are in constant 2007 dollars, instead of wobbling around in sort of the $9,000 up, $9,000 down range, it's now wobbling around in the $18,000 up, $18,000 down range. I argue that this is a measure of risk and that it shows that American families are indeed bearing more risk. We can go into this later. As I say, I, I make the, the numbers case because economists want numbers, so I give them numbers. But I do not think that this is the strongest case that the new economic America is a distinctly a riskier place for most working Americans, even well-rewarded working Americans than it was 25 or 30 years ago. The uh, strongest case is the one that looks at the struts that hold up working families from the working poor to the reasonably rich and that have held them up for generations. It is the one that asks, what is the condition of these struts today, and how does that differ from the past? The answer I come up with is that most of the key struts have been weakened, and some have been kicked out from families altogether. And I, I do try to take people essentially across the water from jobs, benefits, houses. Jobs are shorter and shakier than they were a generation ago. Benefits are slipping out of your grasp if you have them. Houses are less of a bulwark against bad times than they used to be. College costs more, and I would argue uh, insures less against economic falls. Health coverage costs more and insurers less, too. Uh, retirement savings are more insecure and at, at the mercy of, of markets. And even such plain vanilla protections as your bought and paid for homeowners policies are less protective. Now, I'm not going to take you through all of these things. I want to just talk about two of them to give you a taste for the argument. Let me talk about benefits. Uh, let, me, let me talk first about benefits, which is sort of the less obvious one and then one of the more obvious ones. Washington and the presidential candidates spend a lot of time talking about public benefits, about public safety nets, and here they usually refer to Social Security and Medicare. But for the vast majority of working Americans, the safety nets that really count are their employer-provided benefits, the health insurance, the disability coverage, the employer-orchestrated, if not contributed to, 401 ks most Americans are not aware of this, but their grasp on these benefits, their right to receive them, their remedy if they don't, is governed by a single federal law, ERISA, not state laws, no longer union, very often union contracts, just ERISA. ERISA was intended by its congressional authors to protect employee benefits. And we know this because it says so in the preamble of the law. But over the past generation, the Supreme Court and increasingly conservative federal appeals courts have rendered a series of decisions that have turned ERISA on its head, making it easier for employers, benefit administrators, and insurance companies to limit the benefits you can claim or deny them altogether. Let's take a, an obvious one, retirement. Nowhere is the shift of risk 
in this case from business to families, more complete or more potentially damaging than in the move from traditional pensions to 401ks and similar accounts. The burden with traditional pensions of setting aside the necessary funds, investing those funds to make them grow, and delivering the promised amounts to finance people's old age rested when there were traditional pensions with employers. The burdens with 401ks rest squarely with you. Now, theoretically, you could handle this task, but study after study has shown that large numbers of Americans, maybe a third of all those eligible for 401ks, don't do a very good job of it. They either fail to sign up, or they make a hash of the investment, or they borrow against the funds, and they do this particularly in hard times like, in economic downturns like the current one. And these poor performers, the ranks of these poor performers, are not just high school dropouts or, or poorly educated Americans, but some of our nation's finest minds. As I say, I think that the strongest case is the Strutz case, but it's hard to understand the Strutz case without seeing how it plays out in people's lives. And I want to tell you, I want to just introduce you to two of the people you'll meet in the book. And I tell about a dozen stories in the book. I want you to meet Diane Andrews Clark. Diane Andrews Clark lived until recently just north of Boston. She's the daughter of an insurance agent, and uh, she inherited her father's small agency. But at the time she ran across ERISA, she was working at an AT&T factory, uh, making reasonable wages and what she thought were spectacular benefits. Andrews Clark met and married Richard Clark, and the couple had three daughters. Clark began drinking. Under Andrews Clark health policy and under Massachusetts law, Somebody covered by a policy such as Andrews Clark, if in need of alcohol treatment, is due 30 days of inpatient care paid for by insurance. But when Andrews Clark tried to collect, her insurer refused. When she tried a second time, the company refused a second time. Richard Clark was forced to dry out in a maximum security prison and eventually died. Andrews Clark sued the insurance company, arguing that her husband's death and the fact that she was left to raise her children alone, was the direct result of the uh, insurer's refusal to cover her husband's treatment. But because the Supreme Court and federal appeals courts have limited employees' rights under employer-provided health policies, such as Andrews Clark, to essentially getting the benefits that were denied, and because Richard Clark being dead was not available to receive the benefits, she got nothing. And I just I want you to hear the words of federal District Court Judge William Young, a Reagan appointee, when he ruled in this case. Under traditional notions of justice, the harms, if alleged, if true, should entitle Diane Andrews Clark to some legal remedy on behalf of herself and her children. Consider just one of her claims, breach of contract. This cause of action, that contractual promises can be enforced in the courts, predates the Magna Carta. It is the very bedrock of our notion of individual autonomy and property rights. It is among the first precepts of the common law. Our entire capitalist structure depends upon it. Nevertheless, this court had no choice, and here he footnotes a series of Supreme Court decisions, but to slam the courthouse door in Andrews Clark's face. Now on a lighter note, I want to introduce you to Harry Markowitz. For the last two and a half, three decades, um, the advocates of America's free market makeover, and particularly the advocates of the 401k revolution, have defended the idea of do-it-yourself retirement accounts by saying that even if Americans were now failing to do a good job at, at managing the money, they would learn. So I tried to test this proposition, and I tested it by calling up almost all, I missed a few, I couldn't reach a few, all the Nobel laureates in economics living today and ask them what they'd done for their, for their retirement. And, I, and, and this, is, this, is, this is what Harry Markowitz had to say. Professor Markowitz is the father of what's known as modern portfolio theory. And we know this as the notion that you shouldn't put all your financial eggs in one basket, but should diversify. Uh, but when he, it came time for him to make his diversification decision, he all but punted. Here is the 80-year-old Markowitz on the subject. I either had in my head or had just written down the most revolutionary theory of investment the world had ever seen. And here I was asked, how do you want to invest your retirement? And I said, 
50 in stocks, 50 in safe bonds. And he goes on. I'm 24, I'm 25, I'm never going to die. I had other things to think about. In retrospect, I should have done something more sophisticated. As I say, I, I try in each of these, at each of these levels to make the case that people are bearing more risk. Now, this doesn't mean that that's a bad thing necessarily. Indeed, although George Bush talked about, talked about the ownership society, talked about the ownership society only in glowing terms, a generation of policymakers and academics understood and analyzed the risks that were involved in America's free market makeover, and they generated a host of arguments that this was a very good thing indeed that was happening. And at least three of those arguments ran like this. One, it gets the incentives right. For those who are bad actors economically, they pay the price. And those who are good actors get rewarded. It was good also because business and government either no longer wanted to share in bearing the burden of these risks or couldn't afford to. And finally, and most grandly, it was good because, so the argument went, because of the prosperity of this last generation, many Americans, most Americans, had reached a new plateau where we no longer relied solely, had to rely solely on our labor to support our families and ourselves. And that's because we now had assets. We had houses and stocks and mutual funds and 401ks. And the notion was that with these, we could play right along with all the other units in the economy, with major corporations and Wall Street traders. We could invest and diversify and hedge our way to the good life and in perhaps something fabulously better. These three arguments, as the 90s roared on and as the stock market lifted, came to be the general consensus, widely agreed between business and government, between employers and employees, between executives and union officials. What I hope I show in Highwire and what I think that the current entwined crises of the subprime mess, the housing slump, the credit crunch, financial market turmoil, and incipient uh, economic downturn show is not one of these, these arguments hold water today. Just consider the incentives are in the right place. There is clearly, I hear it every time I write about uh, the housing, the subprime housing debacle, there is clearly a sense among many people that reckless borrowers should take the hit. But let's think a minute about that. It is very clear by now that the spillover effect from a bad borrower is quite astounding. The cost is not just paid by that borrower, it's paid by the guy who owns the house next to him. It's paid by the person, everybody else in the subdivision. Arguably, it's paid by American homeowners generally. This, this, the subprime mess essentially sent, kicked the, the, the housing, housing bubble in, into reverse. Or take the argument that business and government no longer wants to or can pay for risk-sharing arrangements. In fact, one of the things that's happened since this crisis started is that those elements of government that can afford to pay for things are rolling out safety nets, not reeling them in. And here I think about the Federal Reserve. I think when the history of this period is written, the decision that was made to spread the financial safety net that the Federal Reserve provides, not just under banks, but to spread it out essentially across the whole financial system, will turn out to have been a crucially important one. It remains to be seen whether it was a wise or not wise one. I, my suspicion it was a wise one. Or finally take the idea that we'd reach some new plateau, that we are like every other economic unit. I think that the arguments that I make in this book, and I think that the current crisis that we face in the economy shows that families are not like other economic units. Families are not, after all, financial firms. Households are not hedge funds. It turns out what we're learning in these crises is that we are, in the language of finance, so long labor and houses that we cannot diversify ourselves away from the risks that we've now been assigned to bear. The ownership society, the free market makeover story, turns out to be just that, a story, and a dangerous story for many Americans. 
American history has been described as one that moves in pendulum swings. And over the last generation, we have assuredly swung farther than perhaps at any other time than the frontier days and the industrial era of the late 19th century towards free markets. But there is another direction which the pendulum swings, and that is uh, towards at least a minimal level of mutual obligation to each other, towards some stability, towards risk sharing rather than risk shifting. But historical pendulums, unlike physical pendulums, do not reverse the direction of their swing on their own. They must be pushed. For most Americans, alive today and for their children, restoring some semblance of balance and stability to their economic lives and reestablishing some minimal sense of mutual obligation between employer and employees, between citizens and their government, is likely to be every bit as much of the defining challenge of our time as a war on terror or any other of a laundry list of hurdles we must cross. Change will not come easily, especially because of the current state of Washington's finances. But come, I suspect they will. And when the, those changes come, they will reestablish a set of values and protections that lie at the heart of what generations have meant when they say America. Thank you. You're listening to National Economics Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, Peter Gosselin, who asks, is the Ownership Society dead? This is Sokolo. Check out our live events around town. Tomorrow, July 14th, Josh Kuhn speaks on The Kidnapped Country, Violence, Drugs, and the Crisis of Mexican Culture. L.A.-based writer and scholar Josh Kuhn visits Socalo to explore the current crisis in Mexico within the broader context of contemporary globalization, drawing on personal, cultural, and political sources from testimonies of victims to local blog accounts to the drug ballads of popular songs. And on Tuesday, July 15th, are L.A.'s hospitals safe? Charles Ornstein, Los Angeles Times health investigative reporter, moderates a panel that will include, among others, Dr. David Feinberg, chief executive of the UCLA hospital system, and Carol Moss, a proponent of public reporting of hospital infection rates, whose 15-year-old son, Niall, died of a drug-resistant staph infection in 2006. And Patty Harvey, vice president of quality and risk management for Kaiser Permanente's Southern California region. They'll talk about how to measure the quality of medical care delivered at local hospitals and the types of questions consumers should ask before they enter one. And on Sunday, July 27th, Sokolo travels to Shanghai with LA versus Shanghai, who is the art capital of the Pacific Rim, moderated by Shinyan Ma, dean of the USC School of Architecture. Admission to these and all Sokolo events is free, but reservations are recommended. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, SokoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment to National Economics Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, Peter Goslin, who asks, is the Ownership Society dead? Stay tuned to Sokolo Radio. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by Midlife Crisis Winery, sharing the crisis and the dream in their tasting room in Paso Robles or online at midlifecrisiswinery.com. What do Presidents George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and FDR have in common? According to presidential historian Gil Troy, it's not that they had a particularly bold or different vision for the country. It's that they were known for their moderation. Gil Troy is author of Leading from the Center, Why Moderates Make the Best Presidents. I'm Larry Mantle. That's what's up on our next Air Talk. Air Talk weekday mornings at 10 on 89.3 KPCC. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand. Coming up, practicing... From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. 
Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. If it's time to get rid of your old SUV or gas guzzler, KPCC can take it off your hands. Donate online at kpcc.org. We'll take care of every step, from arranging the pickup to sending you information for your taxes. When you donate your used vehicle to KPCC, we'll turn that old gas guzzler into the quality programming you rely on every day. That's kpcc.org, and thank you. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now, the Socalo audience asks the questions. Hi, my name is Todd Kerner. Two questions. When Bush talked about the ownership society, I always sort of made the analogy that he was talking about privatization of Social Security. Is that correct? And the other question is, would the financial sector benefit from an entity that would do essentially for the common mortgage borrower or credit card owner the same function that the FDA does for the drug business, whereas I wouldn't expect to be able to go out and figure out what all the risks are in taking a certain drug. They would make sure that it's okay for me. And if there's a group that could do that and say, by the way, this credit card is really bad for you, you shouldn't get it, or this mortgage is a really bad deal, don't take it. Okay. First, with regard to the ownership side, you're absolutely right. The, the, the two proposals that basically made up the two pillars of the, the, the immediate policy proposals that President Bush was interested in was with private accounts and Social Security, which is a sort of notion that you'd have your own sort of little mutual fund uh, that you could manage yourself uh, and pass on if anything was left over the, the balance within Social Security and health savings accounts, which were similarly a, a kind of mutual fund that you would contribute to, you would manage, and out of which you would pay your medical costs. But it is clear that um, the, the president and certainly, certainly many of his aides understood what they were up to here as, as a much grander agenda. I, I mean, this was at the very moment you started hearing about the Ownership Society at the very moment where Bush thought, we, and Karl Rove thought, really we were at, they were at a tipping point where they could, they could fundamentally remake society. They could fundamentally shift to individuals loads of the duties that, that the government had, loads of the risk sharing that the government had done for, for individuals. On the, on the issue of financial regulation, there are proposals for an institution such as you talk about, and whether it is created or not, I can't help but believe that in the wake of what has happened and in the wake of the Federal Reserve's decision to expand the financial safety net, there is not going to be much broader regulation of the financial sector. It makes no sense that, that the government should promise essentially to bear the risks that the financial sector takes and not speak about, not look in on what risks they are taking. If you talk about getting incentives wrong, that is, that is absolutely getting incentives wrong. You are saying to mortgage brokers, to bond traders, to essentially anybody in the financial sector, take a flyer. We'll, you know, the, the risk is going to fall somewhere else. You're not going to face the consequences. So both because it gets the incentives wrong and because the government doesn't want to pay if a big mess gets created, I think you're going to see much broader financial regulation in the coming period. Hi, I'm Jim. Of your many interesting and pretty clearly correct uh, observations, one struck me as, as questionable, and that was whether really private employers and the government are in a position to increase the safety net economically. And while you mentioned the Federal Reserve, there are a lot of questions about how far that goes and whether it's wise. And when you look at some of the other things, Medicaid is in terrible shape, Medicare is in bad shape, Social Security is in bad shape. And whether, gov whether private companies can do it, we see General Motors, which can't afford its legacy costs and had to do a settlement. Would you uh, consider those points and tell us how, how uh, the government and private employers can really afford 
considerably expanded uh, safety nets economically? Well, let me, let me give you a, a sort of weak case and a stronger case. It seems to me that you could read Highwire and take away only this point. We didn't know we were bearing these risks. If you were going to shift risk, you had better let people know, and you had better give them the tools. So whether or not this is a shift that we have to make, it was done in a way, it has been done in a way over the last generation that leaves people, working families, peculiarly vulnerable because they weren't let know that it was happening. And they assuredly were given no tools. Literally, Harry Markowitz's um, nostrum that, you know, don't put all your financial eggs in one basket is essentially what you have to go on when you invest. Uh, you invest for your retirement. There are a couple others, but I mean, you don't have any sophisticated risk measurement tools. You don't have a whole lot of hedging ability. We have seen in people's shift from, from the stock market to housing when the stock market went down an attempt to sort of go in another direction economically, and that one is blown up on them. So I mean, one way you could read this book is not as an as an endorsement of the notion that we need to move risk back, but simply that if we are going to have to do this as a society, we need to give people, we need people to understand that they are bearing these risks. I, I think the other way to answer that question is this. Are there prosperous countries that don't have, don't put as much risk on working families as the United States does. Countries that are, face global competition just as we face it, I think the answer is yes. I mean, Denmark is an example. Uh, I mean, uh, again, I understand Americans hate to hear about other countries. They just simply don't believe there's any, there's any lesson to be learned. But I mean, there are loads of countries, uh, particularly in the EU, that have levels of prosperity comparable to ours and that do it without shunting so much risk onto, America, on, onto families. Um, so I don't disagree with you that, that a lot of companies, particularly older companies, have a lot of problems. I, I think actually, um, well, let me leave it at that. Uh, so that it is absolutely an issue where the risk should go. But I, I, must, I guess a final thing I'd say is this. Americans um, historically have not accepted economic situations that they find intolerable the way medieval peasants uh, did, you know, bad weather or, or the bubonic plague. I mean, they've done something. Uh, the Great Depression was not a great time to expand, uh, financially, to expand um, government programs, but we did it. So I, I think that there, there are a lot of directions you could go. The simplest one may be just to give people the tools and the information and let them do this themselves, but let them understand that they are engaged in a very, very, very big risk-reward trade-off. I do think that, there are, that government and corporate America do have the ability to, to bear more risk. Let me just one more answer now. Sorry, I'm, I'm going on. There are also a whole, there's a whole series of uh, essentially regulatory changes that, that could help here. One of the things, that, it just amazed me, given the hoopla about the 401k revolution, but a couple of years ago, Congress passed and, and President Bush signed a, a pension change, a change in the pension law. And the interesting thing about it was that it effectively said, we admit it, uncle, the 401k revolution was a flop. And it changed a whole lot of essentially the default positions for 401k. Now if you go to an employer that offers a 401k, you're automatically, I think as of the beginning of this year, you're automatically defaulted into that 401k. The amount that's taken out of your check is automatically increased. So this is a class of fixes that does not cost, but does not ask Americans to at the same time become ever the more specialized as actors in the labor market, but then become, you know, everything from an investment banker to, you know, to a contracts lawyer when, when it comes to managing their own affairs. It, it basically puts the 401k system on autopilot. So I think also there are sort of class of changes that could be made that would help in that regard. My name is Mary DeBoer, and you stated that U.S. District Court Judge who was appointed by Mr. Bush, had denied the mother and the three children any compensation for the loss of her husband. My question is, 
Did this matter ever go to the U.S. Supreme, Supreme Court? That case did not. But, but there have been a series of cases that have, have, that the court has taken where they've essentially said that the only thing you can get under ERISA by way of remedy is the denied benefit. You give me a minute, I'll probably remember the case. But I mean, it, I mean, the Supreme Court has made a series of decisions that have made it increasingly hard for Americans to rely on ERISA as a protection. They ruled that it, it has essentially the widest preemption of any lo- federal law over state law. That is to say, state law never applies when it comes to employer-provided benefits. They they made this ruling about uh, about benefits that you d- d- about remedies. The only remedy you can get is uh, essentially your denied benefit, which may make sense in some things, but for example, on health care, does not make sense. They've even made rulings. Uh, the appeals courts and the Supreme Court have made rulings that that make the uh, the claims department of insurance companies and benefit administrators give them the same legal status as as uh, the Social Security Administration, the IRS, so that if the standard you have to meet to make a case is, is really quite astounding. It's called the arbitrary and capricious standard. Their ruling may be dead, you know, a claims department may be dead wrong in refusing um, you coverage, but unless you can prove that they made their decision in an arbitrary and capricious manner, you still are out, out of luck. So that there have been a series of cases, I, I mean, now, I, I might say the Supreme Court has taken one baby step this spring, one baby step back. There's a story in the book about a man named James LaRue. LaRue is a financial manager, and he was smart enough to see the bullet coming in 2000 when the stock market was going, going down. And he, gets, he has a 401k-like uh, account uh, through his employer. So he told the administrator of the employer, get my money out of the stock market and put it into bonds. The administrator didn't do it. And a year later, he said, get my money out of the stock market and put it into bonds. Didn't do it. And the court, the, the appeals court ruled that James LaRue had, and he lost about half of his retirement savings. And the appeals court ruled that James LaRue had no right to collect. And the, their argument in this case was that the law only applies to a whole benefit plan, that we can't give you relief just for yourself. And this is a law that made, this is a structure or an interpretation of the law that made sense when we were in a world of of, of traditional pensions, when pensions were big pots of money and what they were trying to protect was the pot. But it turns out that the, the entire benefit system has changed to these individual accounts. Appeals Court said, uh uh, we only protect pots. We won't do anything individually for you. Now, in March of this year, the Supreme Court overturned that, and they gave Mr. LaRue relief, or at least they sent it back to the appeals court. I can't remember which. But they did it on the absolute narrowest ground. So there is a generation of decisions that has basically flipped Arisa on its head. Good evening. My name is Cook Sanu, and the question is that, so the ownership society or um, revolution it was kind of a flop uh, in a lot of ways, and people from the Nobel laureate that you sedated on to others didn't know what to do. But was the effect on the different racial groups or economic strata more profound? Because I would think that those the least educated or least sophisticated in our society would have suffered more dire consequences than, say, the Nobel laureate might have. Well, if, if, if my risk measure, if my sort of riskometer for American families works, right, um, it surely shows, I mean, if you look at the volatility of income and you look by income, by income group, right, I mean, it, clearly people uh, at the lower end of the income scale have much more volatile income uh, th- than those further up the scale. But the striking thing about, uh, and, and if you look at educational levels, you can see uh, the volatility of the income for, for high school dropouts, uh, families headed by high school dropouts, is higher than the volatility of income for, for families headed by college graduates. But what's striking is that essentially across income levels, 
across income levels at least up to a couple hundred thousand dollars. And across educational attainment levels, volatility of income has, has, has climbed uh, throughout this period. So that if this does work as a rough and ready gauge of the risks that people bear, then yes, it does hit poorer families and less educated families harder. But no, it is not confined to them. Hi, my name's Joe. Um, I just have a question. As a renter, and I, I suspect there's about 30% of the population who yes, rent, that's right. I always hear that it's a bad thing that housing prices are, are, are dropping. Why is it bad for the people who rent that housing prices are dropping? You hear it's a bad thing to rent when housing... I mean, the, no, the notion is that, I mean, the, the smart thing to do is sell, sell high and buy low, so there is going to come a time when it's going to be the optimal point for you to buy if you want to buy. Now, if you think that the market is going to keep going... I mean, I don't mean to give you financial advice, but I mean, I mean if, if, you, if, if you think the market is going to keep going down, don't buy now, right? I mean, you, because you'll ride it down. But uh, about the time you think you're, you're at a trough, switching to, to buying makes sense. I mean, all of the things, I mean, presuming you can afford it. But, I mean, it's, it, the argument, I think, is that when housing prices are starting back up, this is when, I mean, when they're at a trough and they're about to start back up, this is when people who are renters and want to buy should get in. Uh, but, you know, I'm not a financial, I mean, I'm, I'm not a financial reporter or, a, you know, investment counselor or something. So. Okay, listen, thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased <laughs> You've just heard National Economics Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, Peter Gosselin. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stenshole. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs>